Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 1423. It was originally on September the 10th, 2014, and it was called Developing the Skill of Teaching. And uh, I'm doing a rewind today because I'm actually taking a day off tomorrow uh, to spend some time with my wife. I actually had a show for you guys today, but some things happened, and I decided I didn't want to run it for you. Um, I'm not going to say a lot new in this intro of this rewind about... The episode itself. I, I think this is one of those episodes that's pretty timeless. It kind of speaks for itself. And certainly since uh, 2014 when I did it, uh, the only thing that has changed about my opinions of the modern education system is they've, they've become stronger and moved more in the direction that I already was at. So there's no mitigation to anything that you're about to hear. I actually wanted to take the opportunity here today to talk to you a little bit about, again, coronavirus. Uh, specifically COVID-2019 or COVID-19, depending on how they're calling it, um, and give you guys kind of my personal prognosis for like the next month or so. Uh, I put out an article yesterday. There's a link in the notes of today's show, and it was called What We Actually Mean When We Compare COVID-19 to the Flu. And it is not that it is the same. Uh, I, have, I have been baffled. Um, absolutely baffled with the propensity people have right now to hear the word like and jump to the same as or the exactly like or like add these adders and modifiers and something. This is something we generally learn in about third grade glamour, grammar class that drawing a comparison between two things does not mean that they're identical. Um, the upshot of that, just give you the short version, is that Uh, when we say COVID is like the flu, what we're really saying it is is this. If you compare it to everything else that we have to compare it to in the world of infectious diseases, it is more like the flu than anything else. And flus can have death rates comparable to what COVID has. And so what it means is that you don't freak out over the flu, And that doesn't mean that the flu is the same as. It doesn't mean it's identical to. It doesn't mean not to take additional precautions. It just means you don't freak out. And I've also been kind of baffled how don't freak out, well, this too shall pass, et cetera, equals there's nothing here, that it's a nothing burger, whatever. I, it, it's, it's baffling to me. And what I say in this, this article, and I invite you to read it, um, is that I, I think there's a segment of society right now that is in, yes, complete denial. But I'm, I'm not worried about those people. They'll, they'll figure their own shit out, right? They're not the people I generally am talking to. Uh, but there's a segment of especially the prepper world that wants to be afraid right now. And it is it, watching these constant news reports, watching it take four hours for the cruise liner to dock, and they show it in slow motion, and you know they have freaking drones flying 360 views and following it in, like stuff like this. It's like they're watching a reality TV show merged with a horror movie. It's like Jersey Shore meets Contagion. 
And, and they don't want anybody to pull back and say, well, here's the camera crew, here's the actors getting their hair and makeup done. They don't want it ruined for them. And that doesn't mean it's fake. Like, see, this is the thing. Everybody goes to extremes. Like, it doesn't mean it's fake. It doesn't mean there's nothing to worry about. It means that the, the perspective is skewed. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something here that's going to surprise you. I'm going to defend the media and the government a little bit. One of the reasons that they are overhyping this is exactly because people underreact. So they're, they're purposefully attempting to drive an overreaction because things like social distancing, avoiding large crowds, washing your hands, being careful that you are not basically a vector spreading this disease when you're someone that's got a mild case so that you don't spread it to people that, um, that can't handle having it. Or, or even if they don't die, they're going to have very serious complications, put a burden on the medical. Like that's all actually important. And there's a propensity in this country for people to, by and large, completely underreact. But there's also a propensity for underreaction. What I feel is that the media has not balanced this well. That they've gone shock jock for 45 days with it, covering about 40 minutes out of every 60 minutes of content. And it was una I was unable to even not see that looking at like more uh, general everyday programming. I tried that this morning just to see, and it was a sea of this, right? So here's what I expect. I think you need to be ready for the next 15 to 30 days for everything to look a lot worse, to look a lot worse, and in some ways to be a lot worse. I think right now there's probably 10,000 people in America with coronavirus that don't know they have it, and probably a significantly significant portion of those will show symptoms in the next four to 10 days. And it will continue to spread to some degree. And because we now have testing and greater awareness and greater concern, there will be more people that will go to medical facilities one way or another and say, hey, I think I have this thing. Um, and there will be some with very critical issues. That, to, to point out what I'm pointing out does not deny the extreme. But let's put the extreme on the shelf for a minute. All right. So more people are going to go, then there's going to be more cases, then there's going to be more lockdowns, more school closings, uh, more alerts, more everything. Okay. All of it is a good thing in regard to the situation. Every time they shut down travel, block off an area, whatever, it puts pressure on the virus and reduces spread. It doesn't contain spread. It doesn't stop spread. It reduces it. At the same time, no matter how much anybody wants to be in denial of this, respiratory viruses, specifically respiratory viruses from the coronavirus family, and this is very hard for people to get their head around and they have a big resistance to what I'm about to say. This is not a new virus. This is a new clade of a virus. Right? This is coronavirus and a new version thereof. It's much like when you hear there's a new flu, but what they mean is we had H, H1N2 and now we have H1N3. That's, it's not the same as like and the same as are not the same thing. Right? It's like that. And we know the propensity for coronaviruses, which by the way, the cold, the common cold is a coronavirus. The propensity for these viruses is that they do not spread well. Under, and there's, there's two words here that, again, people, they seem to ignore all the words and pick words to object to. Okay? 
There is hot and humid, not hot and dry, hot and humid conditions are bad for respiratory viruses and their ability to spread. That's what spring, late spring, summer brings. We're hitting this curve at the optimum seasonal point for our benefit. That doesn't mean nothing. That doesn't mean it's all going to go away tomorrow morning. That doesn't mean it's not going to get any worse. And by the numbers, it will get worse than it will get in reality, which will cause more panic and more reaction. That is coming now. Okay? That is what is going to come. But then it's going to decline very swiftly. It won't feel swift until it's done. It'll seem like it's going on forever. Basically because Americans have the patience of a three-year-old on a car trip. Okay? I mean, we, that's, we are the microwave generation, right? And we're like the microwave internet generation now. Like, my generation is the microwave generation. We grew up with a microwave. And it, 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 it hampered our patience. Because we went from, oh, that's going to take an hour to cook on the stovetop, you can have it in five minutes. Or heating that piece of pie would have took take you know ten minutes in the oven, and now you can heat it up in thirty seconds. Well, then then the next generation got the internet on top of that, and we have zero patience. So something that has like a thirty day cycle or a forty day cycle to us feels like forever. And and the big big disruption, not to all, to most people here is going to be that of convenience, that of convenience, and that of economic disruption. And it's going not to be everywhere. It's going to be in clumps and clusters throughout the United States. And the bigger the city you live in, the more likely it is for you to deal with it. And the further north you live, the more severe it is likely for you to deal with it. So if you are in, let's say, Houston, Texas, you are probably less like not not have no interruption. You will probably be less affected than if you are in, let's say, New York City. Because... The seasonality itself takes longer to evolve there. Now, when I put this out, both in my original article and today I put out some information about the seasonality of the flu and the cold and all these different... We have, again, probably half a dozen common human coronaviruses that we routinely cycle through like this. And with very little controls, no travel restrictions, um... On the flu, a shot that's this year probably 90% ineffective, etc. 36 years of flu data shows that we hit to about this time of year and we immediately see a major drop-off with no controls. Yet we have controls going on like crazy right now. We have an awareness in the medical community, an awareness in the public that we have, I don't think we have ever had for an illness before because it is serious. And because a sports ball player and an actor got it, now more people are actually paying attention. Okay. Right? But we are still heading into that cycle. And when we get hot and humid, respiratory illnesses tend to slow down in their transmission. To what you'll have, but, hey, they got it in Australia. It's going into winter in Australia, and I didn't say none. I said it is more difficult for it to spread. More difficult does not equal impossible. Or people will bring up, well, what about MERS, which was the coronavirus that hit the Middle East? Okay, this gen it had its genesis in Saudi Arabia. Yes, it's hot there. I acknowledge that. There are people saying stupid shit like the virus can't, can't survive above 85 degrees. Then how does it survive in your body at 98.6 degrees? See, that doesn't make any sense. We have to put the totality of the situation without a host 
elevated temperatures, and elevated humidity, respiratory viruses from the coronavirus family and the influenza family both have a much more difficult time surviving outside of a host and spreading from person to person or otherwise being transmitted. The MERS virus happened mostly in Saudi Arabia and the surrounding Arabic countries. With very low relative humidity, in spite of high temperatures, it did not occur at the peak of their temperatures either, and it primarily spread from dromedaries and camels to humans. I don't know if you've been around these creatures very often, but they slobber, spit, and do that stuff all over the place. And then it did not spread heavily. It had some clusters where it was transmitted to, but it was relatively easy to contain. That's a fact. And we could go through SARS, but in some ways it was very, very similar. Very small clusters, relatively easy to contain. SARS mainly because it hit people so hard so fast. Again, the danger from COVID-19 is that it is something that is more likely to be asymptomatic, meaning showing no symptoms, or mildly symptomatic, showing very mild symptoms. And some people will get it, have it, and recover from it, and not even know that they had it. They won't even know that they had anything more than the cold. That's what it will be like to them. doesn't mean it's everybody. It doesn't mean I don't care about old people. That is a fundamental reality, and that is one of the reasons that it's easier for it to spread. But in the end, this, 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 there are people that are clean. We don't have any reason to believe that hot, humid weather will suppress its ability to spread. Yes, we do. We have 36 years of CDC data showing that respiratory viruses in general do this, and this is a respiratory virus. That still does not mean you won't see a peak. Right, I mean, we're right on the edge of it. You're about to see the biggest peak of this you're going to see right now in the United States in the next two weeks. Doc Bone says as much as 30 days. I think it, you might see it for 30 days, but the peaks, you won't, they won't even know it till it's over, but the peak's in two weeks. I think. I don't know. I think. That's my best guess. Could go a little longer. I see like a 30-day curve. But it's going to look like, see, I don't think Doc and I actually disagree. I just talked to him about this. He sees a 60-day curve. I see a 30-day curve. I see, I see the, the sharp curve at 30 days and the wide, flat curve that we're creating by all of these means of containment looking like more like 60. But you're still like trailing way the hell off. And the reason it looks longer is because it's flatter. Because are you, here's my question for all of you that doubt this, are you acting differently? And I don't mean freaking out and hiding in a bunker. I mean, are you staying a little bit further away from people? Are you thinking about where you travel to? Are you avoiding certain situations? Are you washing your hands more? And most of you would say yes. Okay, that's also pushing down the flu. And the, the, the luckiest thing about this is the flu is in the flu curve is already on the big downslope like it is every year by now. So at least we're not hitting these two simultaneously. Now I've been telling you guys to calm down for a long time, and I have to because everybody's telling you to jump out a window. And as I've said multiple times, I can't help you prepare if we start from an irrational base. We have to pull back to the reality, then we can prepare. My biggest concern right now, and we will be talking more about this as we get through this, this wave, is that whether it's 30 days or 60 days, when this thing totally dries up, and it will, we are going to go through a summer that's relatively uneventful. We're going to have recovery of the markets. Everybody's going to go back to normal. 
there, I would say the odds that this exact strain returns this fall because it was so much more widespread than MERS or SARS, etc., is about 50-50. And if it does come back in the fall, that will be where our real problems are. I have not wanted to talk about that because there's so much flipping hysteria going on right now. But I'm going to tell you, guys, if you have not purged grasshopper attitude, grasshopper psychology from your life yet, this summer will be a good summer. We will not have people dropping over left and right in June. It will be a good summer. This will be behind us. Whether I'm right about the timeline or it's a little bit longer, doesn't matter. It will. It will. Okay. Here's the thing. That has a propensity to make a lot of people feel like this was a wolf-crying episode and totally ignore the concerns that will come up on the resurgence of this. And this fall, winter season coming up, we will not have a vaccine yet. They will have more methods of treatment and whatever. I don't have a lot of faith in our government to fix the supply chain problems that, that have been exposed. And I'm, I'm worried about going into next winter. That's my biggest concern right now. There's plenty of time to deal with that. Right now, just accept the fact that you could end up staying home for two weeks, three weeks. It could happen. Like I said over, you know, about a month ago, I said that could happen. The reason I'm not screaming and yelling from the rooftops is we teach that level of preparedness every single day here. So my other piece of advice, if right now you feel a bit exposed, go listen to the show I did on that a few days ago. I'll put a link to that in the show notes today as well. And additionally, additionally, if you feel I need to stock up, Stop going to the places that everybody's going to stop stock up. Don't go to Sam's Club. Don't go to Costco. Go to Albertsons or Kroger or whatever. Apparently, don't go to Aldi. It's like in Walmart. Like those four were where everybody went first. Also, make note of the things that are drying up around you right now. And when all of this comes back around, it's the time to stock up on those specific things so that when this does happen again, you're not caught flat-footed. Because, as I've said before, if anybody should be screaming and yelling from the rooftops about this thing, if it were as bad as is being made out, it should be me. This is my biggest concern for a disaster pandemic. It always has been. There's an episode I did years ago, you can go listen to, where I laid out a lot of what's going on right now as the result of a pandemic. This is a warning shot. This is a warning shot. We will, sometime in our future, face something far worse. Far worse. This, one more time, is a warning shot. And that doesn't mean no one ever gets taken out by a warning shot. Sometimes warning shots take people out. I'm talking with a metaphor here. Remember, like is not the same as. And one more time, when I say don't panic, it doesn't mean nothing at all. Uh, on that note, I'm not going to talk about this tomorrow for tomorrow's rewind. I'll just do a general intro. I wanted to give you one more thing before I'm gone, because I'm about to be gone for a weekend. Um... But Monday, I already set up with Doc Bones. We're going we're gonna to talk about this from a pragmatic standpoint. 
you know, and, and there's certain things that we need to discuss about high-risk groups and how to protect high-risk groups and why if you are in one, you need to be more, not less, concerned about this. All right. With that, let's go ahead and, and do something a little bit better and rewind and talk about the skill of teaching. Again, uh, we are going back to September the 10th, 2014, originally episode 1423. Remember, while these commercial, or these episodes are commercial free, you can always help support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. And before we do that, just want to add one thing for you guys to give you a heads up. Today's show will end with two songs of the day. The song of the day from the original episode was so tied into the episode itself, and it's Teach the Children Well, that I didn't want to take it out. But I also wanted to finish CCR Week. So um, when you get to the end of this episode and you hear the song of the day, if you hang on, there'll be another one, something a little bit more upbeat. All right, so let's talk about becoming a great teacher. And I, I want to start out with something that I think a lot of people don't understand. And that is that everybody can be and should be a teacher. Teachers are not born. They're made. They're manufactured. And t teachers also tend to have either really high levels of talent of certain things that are useful in teaching, or they don't have high levels of talent there. So... If you're an interesting speaker, when it comes to teaching in the form of the verbal component of teaching, you're going to be a better teacher than someone that doesn't. That's, that's, and I think because of that, people say, well, they're a natural teacher. No, they're a natural speaker, and they're using that skill in their teaching. Because if you're really good at doing something with your hands, and you're teaching a methodology that's mostly how to do something with the student's hands, You don't need to say as much. You need to more do and guide and help the student learn. And you can teach that way because that's your strength. And But then a person will say, well, that person's really a great cabinet maker, and, and they're teaching other people to make cabinets as apprentices, so they're a gifted teacher. No, he's a gifted cabinet maker that's using his strengths to teach. And you say, well, I'm neither, so I really am not a teacher. I'm just not. And and that's that's short-sighted. Uh, because you will never be a complete student unless you're a teacher. Anyone who's ever taken martial arts knows it's not very long before the student that begins to advance is brought to the head of the formation and, and, and asked to lead a class through exercises. Well, this is not just so your primary instructor can go take a break. It is because that student learns more by teaching than he does by being taught. Okay? And that's a fundamental reality. And then the next thing we need to understand is that We've been misled and lied to. Shocking, I know, that society would mislead and lie to us about education, but they do. And what we've been taught, right, think about that, is that teaching is some kind of a magical thing, that a person has to go get a degree, and then they have to be certified with a license by a state institution. And once they have their degree and their certification, and then they've been blessed by being hired and given the title of teacher, Then they're qualified to educate our children. And I'm not just talking about that academic level of teaching today. But that belief, that pervasive belief that that is what makes a person a teacher is why so many people look at teaching as just spooky and I can't do it and there's no way I could ever teach my kids algebra or whatever. Well, if you got through algebra, you can teach kids algebra. All right. And before I even explain why that's the case, let's start out with this. 
I am a slow runner. I run slow. I mean, if you lined up 50 people and we all ran a 50-yard dash against each other, it's a good chance that I'll come in last. And this has always been the case. I played football and I was a running back. How the hell do you have a slow running back? I was a short yardage, push through, bust through a hole, get a couple yards running back. I was not a break down the field running back. I was, uh, you know, I would be put in many times in position as a halfback position to be a lead blocker for that faster runner. So I could run, just can't run fast. Now you, now imagine if I were to say, well, I can't run. And imagine if I would say, nothing that I do will make me a better runner. Wouldn't those both be stupid statements? I could become a better runner. I'm actually not a bad distance runner. And, you know, that spending time in the military maybe helped with that, but I never struggled with running. So you get a formation together, we're going to run six miles. Okay, no problem. You know, you want to sprint? Sorry, can't handle it. I just don't have the speed. It's not there. Does that mean I can't learn to run faster if I tried? And let me put it to you this way. Would not a being, some extraterrestrial being or something like that, that, that didn't have legs like we do, didn't have bipedal motion the way that we do, if they saw me run across the field chasing one of my chickens, for instance, because I needed to get them back into the other place, would they say that that being runs really well? Look at him do it. He's doing it right now. This is how teaching is. Right? Just because someone is a great speaker and can get up in front of a room of, of 50 people and really captivate their attention, and you don't necessarily have that natural inclination and talent, number one, doesn't mean you can't develop it and be much better at even that type of teaching, but it also doesn't mean you can't teach. If you've, if you've shown your child how to tie their own shoes, you've taught. This is why I say, if you can get through algebra, then you can teach your child algebra. Probably better than most teachers, because you know how you got through it. And in some instances, it's not so much learning, and it's getting through it. That's how our educational system is set up to work today. You get through it, you get the right letter grade, you're okay, you go on with your life, you'll never use that shit again. A lot of it. And people know it, and that's why they don't take it seriously anymore. They take the, the, the effort required to do what gives you the stamp of approval seriously, but the acquisition of knowledge is not taken seriously by the average student in school anymore. Now, a person that's going to go into a line of work and is thinking that way already as a young person that will require the mathematics will take the mathematics seriously because it's important to them. It's part of being a great teacher is determining what's important to your students and teaching them that or using that with to teach them, all right, to understand what they know already, what they're familiar with, and to ground back that which you're teaching to them back to what they already know. See, I also want to kind of say today, and, and then I'm going to get off the school teaching thing totally. By the way, like I said, I've never heard from a cop upset about my comments about cops, which I'm so much harder on than teachers, but I've heard from a lot of butthurt teachers. Don't bother. It's not going to change my opinion. Um, but I want to start out with what do teachers mean when they say they want parents, quote, involved in education? What does that actually mean when teachers say that? Well, let's start out with what it doesn't mean. It, it doesn't mean they want you teaching your children. It, no, they don't want that. You might figure out that what they're doing is not that complicated, and, and, and you might actually teach them things they don't want the kids to know yet. 
And you might actually teach the kids how to think critically, and then they might actually question some of the bullshit that's fed down the pipe to them as being necessary or required or true. So that don't mean that they want you teaching the child. They don't mean that they want you seeing to your child's education. They don't mean that. Some teachers are really pissed at me right now. I'm sorry. And when I tell you the truth, you might get more angry, but you'll know it's true. This is what teachers mean when they say, I want parents involved in education. There's two components to our modern education system. One is knowledge, and the other is behavior. Okay, And we spend an awful lot of time focused on behavior, and that means that during that time we're not focused on knowledge. Behavior means I want everybody to sit down in their seat and look forward and face the teacher. I don't want you to not question anything. You can ask questions when I tell you, but do not question the teaching. Just ask the parts that you don't understand, and then I will tell you, and then write that down and remember it. Okay? This is behavioral. The bell rings, get up, go here, sit down there, etc., etc., etc. Behavioral. I've given you an assignment. I want it done. All right. I've given you a report with a deadline. I want it to come back to me the way that I asked it to be prepared. So where's the parent fit in this? What the educational system means when they say they want parents in education to be involved in the education of their children, they want you involved at the behavioral level. Your, your child is given an assignment by the teacher. They want you to make sure your child does it the way they were asked to do it and turns it in on time. Okay. They want your child to sit down in, the, in, a, in a chair for eight hours a day, and they want you to make sure your child knows how to do that. But they don't want you teaching your child the TSP daily history segment. They're not really interested in that. They're not necessarily opposed to it, but they're sure not interested in it. They don't want you actually teaching your child how to learn. See, that's their job. right? Now, the only reason I even bring that up today is because so much of the word teach has been in our minds locked into education system. So if somebody walks up to you and says, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a teacher. Now that could mean anything. That could mean you teach survival skills and wilderness skills. That could mean that you teach permaculture. That could mean that you teach people how to fish. That me could mean that you teach people how to um, to program computers, but as a private teacher that people seek out almost like a consultant when they want to take their programming to a higher level. It could mean so many things. But if, if someone says, I'm a teacher to you, what do you immediately think? They're a school teacher. First of all, elementary, high school, college, what? It's not college because then they would be professors, right? Bullshit. Just bullshit. Just bullshit. When people have to make titles to feel important, it's bullshit. Anyway, so you think school, teacher, school. If I did a word association, you know, I say dog, you think cat. I say green, you think brown. I say wet, you think dry, right? I say teacher, you think school. Very, very simple. Because of that, we have been willing to assign to ourselves limitations on our ability to teach because it's something that's done in school with this organized structure by this certain way, and you have to have a license or a certification from the state to do it. It's special. And, of course, 
teachers are heroes, which is one of the stupidest things that the American people have ever been led to believe in the history of planet Earth. Teachers are not heroes. Teachers are teachers. They're doing a job. Some teachers are amazing teachers that do amazing things and make children really learn in amazing ways, and some of them are very heroic in the way that they do things. I look at them and think, that is a person I'd like to be like. And that, to me, is more what a hero is than someone that throws themselves on a grenade. When a person sets an example, and I think I would aspire to be like them, they're a personal hero to me. And some teachers are that way, in school and out of school. If you look up today's show notes, you'll see a picture of Jeff Lawton there. And it says Jeff Lawton is one of my personal teachers. I have learned more from Jeff about permaculture and permaculture thinking and how it applies to life outside of permaculture than any other person on planet Earth. And I've actually met him in person one time at Permaculture Voices last year in California. And he was my mentor and my teacher for years without even knowing my name because I followed everything he did and I learned from his example. To me, Jeff is one of my heroes. Okay, That doesn't mean I'm putting him on par with somebody that saves 23 people from a burning building, but that's the kind of hero he is to me. To say that all teachers are that is moronic and stupid, but it's been sold to you. And even those of you who have let go of a lot of this programming, when it comes to teaching, this is why the question would even be asked, how do I become a teacher? It's because you believe at least some of this is still stuck in you. That there's this, this magic formula in, I bless you, a teacher. And thou shalt go forth and educate thy kindergartners. Oh, no. No. That is just stupid thinking. And tied into yesterday's show, it's designed program thinking so that you will accept the things that you're told. So before you can ever think, how do I become a good teacher, you need to figure out that everything I've just told you is the truth. And none of it's necessary to be a teacher. And none of it is even usable to determine whether or not you're teaching or not and whether or not you're good at it or not. Because if you're judging yourself on somebody else's metric that doesn't apply to what you're doing, you're going to end up with a low score and you're not going to feel good about what you're doing. That is going to make you less motivated to do better and you're not going to get better. And if you're going to be a teacher, you should be getting better every freaking day. That's part of what's wrong with the educational system today. Okay. Instead of teachers learning how to be better teachers, they're getting more and more education. That's it. They take classes in the summer. So what? So do I. That doesn't make you a hero. But what are you taking a class on? Post-secondary educational formulaic blah, blah, blah. How about teachers should be taking classes on how to speak. That's what they should be taking. How do you speak? How do you engage creatively with another human being? Well, that's section 104. No, no. But they're not going to, so you have to. It's the most important skill you can develop is, is, is teaching ability so that you can teach your children and your friends and your family members and anybody else that you come across and wants to learn what you have to teach. And it actually is a very easy formula to be a good teacher. And it's, it's really a four-step formula. There's only four steps to becoming a great teacher. And it's really, really simple. Step one. Develop passion for things that are important to you. Figure out stuff that you really care about, that you're interested in, that you love, that you want to be involved with. Okay? And develop a passion for it. 
whether it's history or science or a hard skill like mechanical uh, skills or bushcraft, whatever it is, develop passion for it. Really understand what motivates you to be gravitating toward that and interest in it. And then develop knowledge and experience with those things, whatever they are. How to fix a car, what happened in 1610, whatever it is. doesn't matter. Develop knowledge and experience. So don't just learn the information, but apply the information. So if it's academic learning, then you need to do things like additional research and connect it to other events and, and, and become almost sleuth-like in your approach to it. But develop knowledge and experience with those things. Okay. Step three, show and tell others about those things. Step four, repeat. If you don't repeat that, if you don't continue to develop passions and new passions and continue to develop your experiences and your applicational knowledges, then you, you end up being a terrible, terrible teacher. You become mundane and boring. And what about all the other things I said, like becoming a better public speaker and things like that? Why isn't that in there? I'll tell you why. And, and, and I'm going to be fair here to academic teachers in schools and explain why they can't do this. In, in many instances, they can't do this uh, as I get there. But let's start out with subject matter as, as, as the student desires to learn about it. So if I got on the air today and said, hello, this is Jack Spearco. And today, you'd be like, oh, my God, get me a gun so I can blow my brains out. This guy's got to go. He's got to, I cannot listen to this, okay? And it wouldn't matter that I'm talking about preparedness because you'd never get to the point where you'd listen long enough to get to the subject. But the subject matter does matter, and I'll explain how that works. I'll make it very real for you right now. I'm teaching you how to teach by teaching you. Watch. Um, let's say that you and four other people were sitting in a room at a hospital, and all of you needed a kidney. All of you needed a kidney. Y'all needed the same type of kidney. And I was a half hospital staff member, and I walked into that room and said, we have one kidney. The person who will be receiving it is, I would have all four of your undivided attention at that point. You'd be like, oh, I hope it's me. I don't care. That I say it, but God, I'm going to listen because it might be me. Right. So the more compelling the subject matter is to the student, the less important it is for the teacher to deliver it with like really pizzazz and oomph and all that other stuff. Okay. Here's the interesting thing. When the teacher is passionate about the material and when the teacher has actual knowledge and experience with that material, the teacher is a normal person and talks about it and they're excited about it and they want the student to learn it because they enjoy it. Now, if the student is there by choice, then the student is also pulling that information and the teacher can see the student gaining the knowledge that's very important to the teacher that clearly is very important to the student and all of a sudden there's a symbiotic relationship there and it's exciting for both of them even if they're not super with their delivery or their reception. doesn't matter because both of them are excited about it. And then if the teacher encourages the student to start teaching as quickly as possible, 
Okay? The student learns so much more. And then if the teacher and the student go on this journey of discovery together and are repeating this process over and over again, and students are creating students and sending new students back to teachers who sent new students out into the world, all of a sudden you get into a very sustainable educational model. Students learning what they want from whom they want to learn from. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Now, this is why teachers can't do that. You're a school teacher, especially if you're teaching, like, third grade. You pretty much teach all the subjects, I think, still at third grade. I don't know if they have kids changing classes at third grade or not. Um, I don't care. Let's say you're a, a high school teacher, and you have a teaching degree, and you can teach geology or history or math or physical education or whatever, and there's a position available for a certain subject. It's not really your passionate subject, so... You take the job to make money. Or you're a history teacher, and you're a really good history teacher, but they need somebody to teach geology too. So all of a sudden you're teaching history half the day and geology the other half the day, and you really don't give a rip about geology. Not only that, but a shitload of your students don't give a shit about geology. And you're telling them it's important and it's necessary, and you don't believe it. And then you are passionate about history, but half your students don't give a rip about history. Well, additionally, there's all this shit in history. You're like, these kids would dig this stuff if I could just tell them about all this other stuff. And like, I'm sorry, you have to follow this common core curriculum and teach the shit we tell you to. So you can be as charismatic as anybody in the world and you still struggle in that environment because the whole system sucks. That's why we have to replace it. And we have to replace it by first developing people into teachers and understanding that teaching is not special, that we are fundamentally students and teachers as beings, that you were born to teach, just like you were born to learn. Put a group of kids together. Have one kid know how to play a video game and the other kid don't know that video game at all, has no idea, never even saw that gaming system before. All the buttons are different than the one. How long does it take that kid to teach that other kid to play that game? What, like 45 freaking seconds? A-A-B-B-A. Oh, A-A-B-B-A. Can't remember Jack shit in school. A-A-B-B-A. Why? It's important to him. And the teacher's passionate. And the student's passionate. And they're learning together. Oh, did you know there's a cheat code? How'd you find that? Oh, I just did this and it worked. Oh, okay. Right? So... Do I think that's the most productive type of teaching? No, but it fundamentally seals the deal on this bullshit that only special people can teach. If you believe you can teach, you can teach. If you're passionate about something, you can teach about it. I mean, that's just, that's just the way that it is. Now, do I think that if you want to be a really good teacher and you're going to be in somewhat of an academic situation where people are going to be seated and you're going to be in the front of a room and all the eyes are going to be on you, whether it's a bunch of kindergartners or a bunch of people from a corporate event, that you might do well if you're not a natural speaker to go to things like Toastmasters and learn to speak in front of groups and learn to, to not use so many placeholders. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, but, 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 okay, so to learn the, a natural flow of words. And one of the most important things that a person can learn as a public speaker is, if you get stuck, just keep going. 
you'll unstick yourself. If you sit there and go, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, you're screwed, and your mind locks. You just start talking about whatever you were talking about, tell a story, and, and go on. But the formula, again, develop passion for things that are important to you. Develop knowledge and experience about those things. Show and tell others about those things and repeat. Well, it's a skill, so you have to develop the skill. What The skill development is the development of the passion, the develop of the knowledge, and the development of the experience. This creates skill. Whether the skill is the application of academic knowledge in an academic environment or the application of mechanical knowledge in a mechanical way. doesn't matter. That is the skill development. What about the development of the skill as a teacher? That is in the showing and telling others about that actually develops the skill of teaching because the student that wants to learn says, I get it, and you go, okay, that, that, that method works. And the student goes, I, I don't get it. I don't understand what you're saying here. And instead of being indignant, well, you're just supposed to, the teacher in this natural voluntary educational engagement says, it's my obligation since this person wants to learn and is trying to figure out how to reach them. Let me explain it to you this way. That's the, ultimate, that's the ultimate sign of a good teacher. The teacher that can say, it's like when, or let me explain it to you this way, or have you ever been here and seen this? And then when the student says yes, they say, okay, now I've got a frame of reference. And then they come full forward with that. And the natural teaching process does that. But I do have specific skills and specific ways to develop those skills that make a person a better teacher as well for you today. So I have a second formula. And the very first one is learn to tell stories. Learn to tell stories. I don't, I'm not good at storytelling. How many times have you probably been, if you're a guy and you hunt, uh, it's telling a bunch of bullshit stories with guys at a hunting camp? The one that got away, the big buck that you didn't shoot, the big buck your buddy shot that you were going to shoot, whatever. It's just, it, human beings are storytellers. But learning to tell stories is the ultimate in the skill development world for the teacher. Because I don't care how hands-on what you're doing is and how little academia is part of it, or if it's all academia, this is even more important. Sooner or later, students get into a position where they really want to understand what you're telling them. They, they, they're not... You know, little Bobby that doesn't care, that's sucking his thumb and looking out the window. They're, I, I want to get this. Whether you're a karate teacher and you've, you've given them a new form to get into and they go to get in that form and their form's not right. And when you correct their form physically, it feels wrong. And they don't understand, they're not questioning your teaching, they don't understand what they're what they're doing wrong. They think, even though I look right right now, maybe I'm not right because it doesn't feel right to me. Or is it okay? It also might be, is it okay that it doesn't feel right? Is this how it feels? So they want the teacher to reassure them, am I doing this the right way? Am I really right or are you just letting me get by? Right? That's a real student. They really want to know. And in that case, there's probably a story that can relate back like the first time I did this I thought so as well and this is what I was feeling is that what you're feeling now All right? so even something that hands on like a martial art there's a need for this storytelling component the reality too is that people are more likely to remember a story than a fact so if I tell you the story of a war you're probably going to remember when it happened. 
But if I just tell you that the war occurred between 1714 and 1721 and it was fought over... Uh, you, but if I tell you the actual story of the war, why was there a war? How could a war have been avoided? What was the eventual outcome and how did it impact the lives of individuals that were there? What changed in the world that's still around today because that happened? What can we see in the world that looks like that that might be a precursor to another war and how could we avert that and who will be affected? And if I can pull all that into a narrative, you'll know more about that war than you ever will from the boring pages of a typical textbook history book. I love history books. I hate textbooks. The problem with textbooks is the authors know that they're sold before they write them, so they don't give a shit if they're any good. They're just following a formula. Uh, it's probably the biggest scam on planet Earth is the textbook scam. Um, seriously, teachers should be selecting their own books. And students should be selecting their own books. And guess what? If you do things on your own, you can. That's that's part of the, the formula. Learn to tell stories. The other thing, and it goes right in with the stories, is learn to use analogies. And I think learning to use analogies is actually a little bit more important than just learning to tell stories. And the reason the analogy approach works so well is it relies upon something the student is familiar with. So if I was talking to you, for instance, about, I don't know, the way a tree moves water from the root out of the ground, up the root, to the tree's point of germination, out to the cambium, and up to the branches. It's actually a very complex thing. But if I can explain it to you as though it's going through pipes and tubes, and the different types, pipes and tubes have different diameters. And the tree is acting like a pump. And it's using the same principles that a pump does to move the water. And as the water goes through a, a, a wider pipe, it has a lower pressure than it when it goes through a smaller pipe. And if you put your finger over the end of a garden hose and see how the pressure goes up because you've restricted it, that's how it's working. I actually need to explain more to you to, to go there. This is a very, I don't know why I picked that, honestly. It's a very deep, um, involved thing with a torus pattern that results out of the other side of it. Um, but by saying it that way, if you're familiar with how pump works and you're familiar with how water pressure changes just by restricting how much can pass through an area, then it starts to make sense because you have a frame of reference that's familiar to you. If I am teaching you about how to develop a strike in the Russian Sistema martial arts, not a conventional karate punch with a straight arm and everything's rigid all the way along, but this relaxed arm striking of Russian martial art. Initially, since it's counter to what you've always been taught about how to hit somebody, you will see it as flawed and it won't make sense. And since you don't believe in it, it'll be very hard for you to learn how to do it. I have two approaches. One, I can hit you if you'll let me. And you'll go, oh, I'd like to know how to do that. Or I can explain it to you with an analogy. So the analogy I've always used is let's imagine there's a dead guy laying there. Okay? People are familiar with dead. And he's, he's new dead. So he's not, there's no rigor mortis. He's like, like drunk dead. 
You know, when you try to carry a drunk, see, I'm using something you might be familiar with, or a, a sleeping child that seems so much heavier because a completely dead weight, right? Yeah, okay, so yeah. So let's say I took that dead guy, cut off his right arm, okay? And you can visualize that. It's kind of gruesome, but okay, I, it's not bleeding or anything. It's just a thought experiment. I got this dead weight arm. Now, how heavy do you think that arm is? 15, 20 pounds? There you go. It's about right. Now, let's say I take the fist of this guy's arm, since it won't stay in a fist anymore, and I put it into the shape of a fist, and I take duct tape, and I duct tape his fist like a ball. Can you get that? And the person goes, yeah, okay. So now let's say I pick it up, and I hold it by the bicep like a baseball bat, and I throw the arm so the elbow's forward over my shoulder. So now I've got his fist laying on my shoulder blade, and I'm holding his bicep. You got that? Yeah, okay. Now, I swing it like a bat. Just just gently, I just go, just like like a light throw of a sledgehammer. No real force behind it. Just just hurl it over a little bit, give it a little bit of velocity, and let the weight take over. Got that? Yeah. And you are standing in front of me, and that taped-up fist hits you in the top of the head. They go, holy crap, there you go. That's how it works. And if that arm can act that way, cut off of a body... Why can't you learn to make it work that way while it's still attached to your body? So now we've taken something people are familiar with, the concept of dead weight, basic leverage in mechanics, the way, let's say, a nunchuck works, a nunchuck, right? You've got two sticks pulled together by a chain, and if we use that chain and we let the kinetic energy build and come over, all right, and deliver that blow, it, it, the, the stick hits harder than if the sticks were a single stick of the same weight and same length. You get a greater impact when you flail with it because of that mechanic. That's how the arm works. So assuming a person's familiar with dead weight and basic leverage principles, that analogy works. Now, the job of me as a teacher, if I say to somebody, have you ever picked up somebody with this completely dead weight? And they go... No. Well, I guess you haven't had many drinking parties or whatever then, but it's now up to me to do what? To figure out what will work in this analogy or give them the experience. So one way I could give them the experience is say, I'm going to stand here and I want you to put your arms around me like a bear hug and I want you to pick me up. Okay? And they pick you up. And I say, okay, I'm going to go completely dead right on the ground. I want you to pick me up off the ground and then just lay there like a lump. And let them see what it's like to try to pick somebody up that's just completely, so that they can see that's, so now if they don't have the experience, I can give it to them. But I can't always give them the experience. There's going to be times where it's not practical to give the experience I've chosen for my analogy. So now as a teacher, I have to reach deeper and find what they are familiar with. And the better I know my student, right, as a person, as a human being, the better I'm going to be at finding something that's going to work. And if you develop the ability to use the analogies, you're going to be very, very good at that. But it goes to the next skill that you need to develop. What you have to develop next is pattern recognition. Now, this is something we talked about yesterday with seeing the pattern of control of society. This is how society is controlled. This is how you are manipulated. This is how you are kept divided. This is how your government gets what it wants from you. And once you see the pattern, you're like, oh, holy crap, there it is, right? And until you see the pattern, you don't know that it's there, okay? Patterns and connections 
very big permaculture principle. And this is why I love permaculture. I'm not talking about permaculture today, but this is where it, this is where my ability to explain to you really comes from. Even though I've always had the skill. It is something that I'm lucky. I'm a very lucky person as someone who loves to teach that I've always had this ability to see connections and patterns. I just didn't have it formalized into a concept the way that I do now. When you can see connections, then it's very simple for you to find one that works for your student. So if you're able to see that A is related to Z, even though no one else can see how A is related to Z, And you can explain how to get from A to Z without going to B, C, D, E, how to make a direct linear connection between these two concepts. Maybe it's A to M to Z, right? There's this linchpin in the middle that connects the two and show how the two correlate. It opens the student to the same thing, and now we're really learning. Because if all I'm doing is teaching you facts and figures or skills even, you only have the ability to do or say that which I've taught you to do or say. And I haven't educated you. In a sense, I've programmed you. And that's what most educational methods are. They're a programming of the student both in behavior and academically. So I'm programming the student to sit when the bell rings, and I'm programming the student to answer two plus two with four. Okay? And then I'll trick myself into thinking I'm, cr I'm creating critical thinking by coming up with common core math that makes 2 plus 2 complicated when it's not. Where if I'm teaching the student to make connections, if 2 plus 2 is 4, then what's 4 plus 4? And if 2 plus 2 is 4, how does that apply to my life? How many twos do I see around me? How many pairs do I see around me? What's a pair? Not the fruit. What's a pair? What does that mean that there's two? How many places are there pairs in the world? And why are those pairs there? What's unique about that? That student starts to look around and see the concept of pairing. Male and female. Hot and cold. Wet and dry. That's way more important than four. That doesn't mean you don't learn four, but it's way more important than four. That that's because if you if you have a, a, a person that gets that, we'll figure out four. There's two there and two there. One, two, three, four. Oh, okay. Fours. What's unique about that? It's not anywhere near as interesting as two, is it? The duality. Concept. So now I've gone from a simple math memorization, 2 plus 2 is 4, to the duality of all things in the world, including spirit. Now I have a way to see connections to everything that's out there. It probably means then that almost everything has a counter. Every opinion has a counter opinion. It comes in pairs. Every emotion has a counter emotion. They come in pairs. Happiness, sadness, come in pairs. Where else do I see a pair? See, the person that once that's switched on in the brain, you're going to have a hard time walking through the rest of the freaking day now without going, oh, there's a pair there. Or what's the counter to this? That's just one example of connecting things, the connections and patterns. What is the pattern of a tree? How does it branch? Okay, where else do I see that pattern? Now, as a teacher, 
I might then say, I'm trying to teach this student how to develop this handle for a tool. And it's like a branch. And a branch that bends this way will break in the wind, and a branch that bends this way will be strong in the wind. And I could show my student the branch in the tree and say, which of those two branches do you think is more likely to break if it gets weighted down with snow? And that student looks and can see the pattern and goes, oh, this one. Well, if we build this tool handle this way, and the stress is like this upon it when it's being used, it's more likely to crack. And that's why we don't do that. That's why we've put this certain master's touch in the shape of this handle. I don't know if that's a real analogy or not, but it's the type of thing that I'm talking about. And you have to see the patterns and connections so that you can use them in your teaching. It's probably the most valuable thing you can learn, teaching, learning, doing, being, is pattern and connection. Once you have that, it becomes very difficult for anybody to bullshit you anymore. Because when they start, you see, here's the, here's the other side of this. As you teach, you become much more intelligent. A fundamental reality is this. If I show you something, just show it to you. Hold up a card with a phrase on it. Or tie a knot. I'll just show it to you. That's all I do is show it to you. You have a certain, based on your natural memory, a certain likelihood of remembrance. But it gets pretty constant after that. If I show you and then tell you additionally, you, it goes up by a factor of about 10 that you'll remember it. If I show you, tell you, and make you do it, it goes up by another factor of 10. 10 times 10, 100. If I show you, tell you, have you do it, and then have you show me how to do it, it goes up by another factor of 10. 100 times 10, 1,000. And... That means that we actually do our greatest learning while teaching, not just as some metaphorical concept, but in actual concrete and measurable ways. This is very well known in the military. First time I learned to tie a Swiss seat, right? Which those of you who know how to repel know how to do that. I show you everything to do, and then guy shows you how to tie the knot. Says right over left, left over right. Repeat it back to me. You repeat it back to him. Okay, untie it. Show me how to do it. Okay, boom. I could tie one tomorrow. Haven't done it for years. Why? The minute you teach it to somebody, it's cemented into your brain. You can't get rid of it. It's there forever. I didn't know I was going to talk to you about that one today. But as soon as I brought up the concept, I'm back to that moment. I wasn't even in the army yet. This is what was called the DEP, the late entry program which is where you've signed up, you're going to go, you know when you're going to go, and you're not going yet because you're still in school, for, in my instance. It's like you're going to graduate, have a little bit of your summer, and then you're going to go off to basic. And um, they had through the recruiting office where you get together with other guys that were going to go and learn skills. So we went out and we learned to rappel off this bridge up in hometown Pennsylvania. And this guy that was from the Army, uh, I think he was actually a ranger, uh, that was teaching us to rappel, used that method to teach me at 17 how to tie that rig. 
and it stayed with me since 17. I'm, I'm in my 40s now. And that's because I was forced to teach it back. So the actual reason to be a great teacher is a little bit selfish. It's so that you will know more. It's so that you'll be more skilled, that you'll have more knowledge, that you'll be better at everything that you do if you're a good teacher. Kind of bringing it full circle back to the beginning, because I want to talk now about why this is important, why this is a survival topic, um, how this concept can actually change the world for the better. You know how in the beginning I said what teachers meant when they said they wanted parents involved in education isn't what you might think it would mean. It, it doesn't really mean they want you involved in the education of the children. They want you involved in the behavioral control of the children. They want you to make sure that the child does what they've said the child's supposed to do. Okay. To be fair to the individual teachers, most of them don't know that. They don't know that's what they mean. They're so institutionalized into a system that's told them how special they are and how they're underpaid and underappreciated and they do the most important work in the world and the things that aren't going right in the classroom are not their fault, it's your fault. They believe that. And when they say, we want parents involved, they don't, they've, most of them have never sat down and thought about the fact that they don't actually want the, the parent educating. They want the parent to be responsible for the student's compliance. They're not bad people. They don't know that. But that's what the system wants. The system wants compliance, and the parent is one means of the, uh, the, the enforcement of compliance. So is punishment by the school. So is fear of punishment by the school. So is law enforcement now, because schools can't even get shit done on their own. they got to bring cops in to get shit done. Um, and that, that's, that's a message for you guys in the education system that the students no longer respect you, and that's because you're no longer earning respect, you're demanding it. That's another thing. A good teacher knows you earn respect. You don't require it. doesn't work that way. Now, there might be a certain level of respect you expect from a student the day they show up if they've chosen you. If you've chosen me, you must think, I know what I'm doing. I need you to trust me. I need you to follow my instructions. That doesn't mean you don't question them. Maybe you just don't question them on my time. But again, the teacher doesn't know this. The teacher that says, I want my parents more involved in their child's education, doesn't know when they say it what they're actually saying. They, if you're a teacher and you're still listening today, you've probably never thought about it that way. And I guarantee you, if you soul search that, you'll realize that's what you're saying. I want the parent to ensure compliance. And if we live in a world where people believe that teaching is something done only by special people called teachers, karate teachers teach karate and discipline, but they don't teach mathematics. Really? I learned a lot about counting to 50 on my knuckles. I'm a karate teacher. <laughs> I started to learn a lot about mathematics with subtraction when we were doing a certain number of reps, and I wanted to know how many were left before I could be finished. Just saying. <laughs> so, you know, they do. But we have this thing like, okay, so you're a wilderness teacher, so that person's qualified to teach about wilderness. That person's a school teacher, so they're qualified to teach at a school. And this is a ridiculous, bullshit way to live. And if every person out there today listening just in this audience said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take Jack's crazy-ass advice, and I'm going to become a teacher. 
I don't know exactly even what I'm going to teach yet, but I'm going to figure out stuff and I'm going to start teaching people. Whoever wants, and I'm not going to force it on anybody. I'm not going to get Messiah complex. I'm not going to go out and find something I'm really passionate about and love and learn all about it and then go verbally puke on people that don't care because they're not passionate about that. I'm going to become passionate and knowledge and skilled in, in as many areas as make sense for me. And I'm going to seek out people that want to know more about that, and I'm going to teach them, and I'm going to learn for them. There's 100,000 people listening to this show. If every one of you did that, we would radically transform the planet in 10 years. It's contagious. And with 100,000 people, there would be at least one person in every relevant subject on planet Earth out there on fire teaching other people about it. And all of a sudden, people start going, You know what? I learned more from that dude over there than I did in school. Maybe I'm going to have my kid talk to somebody like that instead. We live in a society where people are programmed. They're not taught. They're programmed like a computer. Your body is the hardware, and they install the software of their choosing. And this software installation process is... The operating system, okay, is the school system. That's, that's the installation of like Windows, right? Or, or, or Leopard or whatever Apple's on now, right? Whatever they call it. That's the, that's the OS. So that makes the, the rest of the programming run. So we learn to show up on time. We learn to tie our shoes the right way. We learn to dress the way that the society tells us to. We learn that people in authority are not to be questions, that we're to do what we're told. We learn all these things to follow the commands of the keystrokes. And that makes us susceptible to all the other programming in the world. The good student is the one that always believes the bullshit put in front of them on the news. I don't mean the good student like the student that does well. I mean the good student that the teacher would say, what do you think about Johnny? He's a great student. Good student. Sometimes he doesn't get an A. You know, sometimes he gets a B. Occasionally C's. But, but good student. Tries hard, does what he's asked to do, gives full effort, listens, behaves, raises his hand when he has to take a piss. Never causes any trouble. Great student. That person screwed. Screwed in life. They'll believe anything authority figures tell them. Because the operating system is flawless, according to the programmer at that point. So now we can teach you all day long without you knowing you're being taught. We'll teach you to be afraid of ISIS today and somebody else tomorrow when ISIS is no longer useful to us. We'll teach you that you have to always do what a police officer says. We'll teach you to comply. And if you don't comply, we'll hit you with a stick. And that'll teach you to obey. And those of you that really won't obey, we'll put you in a room. We'll feed you three meals a day. And when you want to get out, you'll have to obey. Is that school or jail? I'm not sure. But it's one of those. It all depends. And we're susceptible to this because we know of no other way to learn. And we assign to teachers this magical quality, this special ability. Well, I don't have a certificate in teaching. I'm not licensed by the state of Texas or certified by the state of Texas or whatever the ass clowns in Austin call it in this state. I don't have that credential. I've never been hired by a school to teach people. That's not exactly true. I've guest lectured at a couple colleges in my field of choice at the time, which was fiber optics. But 
It wasn't really like a teaching teaching. But did you learn anything from me today? If so, I've taught you. Do your kids know how to tie their shoes? Did you show them how to do that? You're a teacher. Think about that. There's, you know, sayings that the establishment's proud of, but they don't mean it. The, the child's first teacher is the parent. Something they all like. They like to have that on a little plaque in the walls of the schools and all. They don't mean it. Because as soon as you're teaching your your child something that they don't agree with, what do they say? You're a, you're a bad parent. They get to call CPS in. This guy's teaching like religious nutjob stuff. Right? And even though I don't share that religious belief with you, I think you have every right in the world to teach your, your child what you believe. Sooner or later, they're going to grow up and decide whether they choose to believe it too or not. I, don't, I certainly don't want the school saying, you, you can't tell them that the creationism is real. That's damaging to their brain. I don't want that. I think it's not happening. It is. So how can you say the child's first teacher is the parent when, when the parent teaches something you don't agree with, you immediately attack the parent? See, those two, the action is incongruent with the statement. So you have to ask yourself, why is the establishment, and it's the system, so afraid of the parent teaching counter to the institution? Because it works. See, it creates this thing called independent thought. This is why I believe it would radically transform the world if people would just take upon themselves the basic teaching formula. Develop passion for things that are important to you. Develop knowledge and experience about those things. Show and tell others about them and repeat that. You can't do that without critical analysis, independent thinking, learning to tell stories and use analogies, seeing connections and patterns, and, 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 and developing the basic trivium of education, which is grammar, rhetoric, and logic. See, we've even made words that are not bad words, bad words. Rhetoric. When you hear rhetoric, it has an almost immediate, immediate negative connotation. That's just rhetoric. Most people that say that don't even know what the hell rhetoric is. The next time somebody says, that's just rhetoric, I want you to think about this definition. Rhetoric. Noun. The art of effective or persuasive thinking, speaking or writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques. That's nothing but the effective and persuasive use of language. <laughs> That's just compositional thinking. Because they've added a new definition, often regarded as lacking in sincerity or meaningful context. But that's not what rhetoric is. So does anybody aspire anymore to master rhetoric? Said that way. No, because we've polluted the word. Why would your society pollute the concept of effective speaking and writing, especially the use of figures of speech and other compositional techniques? Why would, why would your society degrade that? Because rhetoric leads to logic. If I'm going to explain it, I have to check my rhetoric with my logic. And when I'm listening to somebody else explain things, I have to check their rhetoric with my logic. I can't just say it's empty rhetoric. right? Oh, it's just Well, we can. We can program people to believe that. See, your operation system's installed by the school system, the indoctrination center. And then maybe you go to college and get an upgrade to your operating system. And then we'll just tell you on TV over and over again 
Rhetoric is bad. Rhetoric is bad. Rhetoric is bad. Command accepted. Rhetoric is bad. And that's you, a walking zombie. Because you're not teaching. If you were teaching, you'd have to use rhetoric. Then you might know what it means, and you'd have to check your rhetoric with logic. And <gasps> if you check your rhetoric with logic, if you train yourself that I'm making this case, hold on, how do I know my case is valid? Let me find and fact check my own claims. Let me see how they actually were applied. Has anybody else done this? Am I the only one successful with this? Have other people done this successfully? Does this make sense? Okay, yes, it does. Now I'm going to go forward with my rhetoric, and I'm going to explain my position. I've done my research. I've understood language. And I've used the understanding of language and experience to gain knowledge, which I'm now expanding through rhetoric, checked by logic. If I'm going to do that with myself, what do you think I'm going to do with you? And your rhetoric? Don't you think I'm going to go, oh, I see. This is a very persuasive argument that they're making. Let me use my logic to fact-check that rhetoric and see if it marries up and matches my acceptance right now. I feel like this is true, but I don't know that I... Don't you think if I'm going to check my own rhetoric, I'm going to check yours? Now, if you're an institutionalized society that has built a system based on compliance... Do you want a society of people that not only can be persuasive in speaking and writing as an art, which is what rhetoric really is, it's an art, that have, have taken the persuasive speaking and writing ability and the compositional techniques <laughs> and figures of, of speech to a way where they're actually very effective communicators of an idea and yet have the ability to have self-discipline and check their own rhetoric with logic and check the, the rhetoric of others with logic. Do you want that? Okay, so what do you have to do in that society? You have to create a profession of teachers and you have to teach the society that only these people are qualified to teach And they've been through our rigorous protocols, which means we've programmed them very, very well. And we've told them what to teach you and how to do it. And they're going to do things the way we say. And that's how you know you can trust them. Because you can always trust your government and your institutions. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to drive out logic and rhetoric. You pay lip service to grammar. That's how you run and control a society. So when you say, well, if they have us that tightly controlled, how do we fight back? Teach the children well. You know? <laughs> Notice it is teach your children. I think it's teach your children well, isn't it? I don't really know. I've not, That's an old song. It is your Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. I think I'll, I'll end the show today playing that song. Hopefully nobody will sue me over it. Um, but it's teach your children well. I think that's very important, and I think that a lot of people in society might have had the same question I did right there. Is it teach the children well or teach your children well? See, what we've, what we've done is exactly that. We've lost. We've lost the ethic in this song. Teach your children well. We're going to reform the education system so that we can teach the children, but not teach our children. Teach your children. Remember, folks, when they say they want you involved in education, they want you involved in the behavioral, behavioral component, not the academic component.
The biggest reason for you to learn how to teach is because you'll learn so much by teaching. And the big thing you'll learn is to check things with logic and critical thinking. And that's why society's not real interested in this. Because it causes problems. Be a problem. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't. Must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself. Because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by. And feed them on your dreams. The one they fix. The one you know by. Hey guys, Jack here at the end. I bet you thought I was just going to go into the standard uh, old ending like most rewinds do. I started to, decided to start doing something else for you guys. When I leave you with rewinds, give you still a song of the day so there's more new content when we rewind older episodes. So today we are continuing on with Credence Clearwater Revival Week. This is another song I find is underrated uh, from CCR. And I'll give you a confession. 
even though I am a child of the 70s and 80s, and even though I grew up really having an appreciation for 60s and 70s rock because of the family that I was part of and the friends that I was with. And when you grow up in rural Pennsylvania in the 80s, it is different than growing up, I think, in a lot of other places in, in the 80s. Because if you grew up, let's say, oh, I don't know, in Dallas, Texas in the 80s, you were probably in the 80s. If you grew up in the coal region of Pennsylvania in 1985, it was kind of like it was 1975. So... I still didn't actually hear this song for the first time with CCR singing it. I heard this song for the first time, and I thought it was put out by probably the greatest country music band of all time, Alabama. Alabama released a version of this song. I don't remember when exactly, but somewhere early-ish, mid-ish 80s, like 84-ish, 85-ish, somewhere in there. And uh, they did a great job with it. And I remember I was with my uncle and a friend of his, and we were going out to the Susquehanna River for fishing. And I had made this tape with all this music that I thought was awesome. It was like, I, I don't remember what was on it, but I know that the Alabama cover of Green River was on it. And so was um, Beds Are Burning by Midnight Oil. And I remember my buddy, my, my, my uncle's friend was a guy, I don't know what his real name was, but we called him Graver. And I don't think that was actually his name. Uh, and uh, I remember the Midnight Oil song came on. He goes, this is a good jam, kid. You did all right. And I remember when this song came on, he goes, if you're going to play it, play the original. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I went back and found the original one all the way back then. I was like, wow. And that, that was, it was difficult to do back then. That meant like going to a, you know, a record store. To, to date this, right? And I was like, man, this is, how did I not know about this song from CCR? And what it was is I had, like, CCR's Greatest Hits. That was, like, the tape I could afford. So I didn't get all of, kind of, the side B stuff, like we talked about with the song yesterday. And I, I think this song is just another one of those songs that demonstrates the lost opportunity that happened when CCR fell apart. Like this real this band should have been one of the best all time selling bands. And if you think about how short the duration was, you know, like but every album that came out had had hits on it, and every album on it, every song was good. Like you know how like I think people are spoiled today because of music download services and stuff like that. You can hear whatever you want whenever you want. You know, back back when I was a kid, we still had records, and so you could go out and buy singles. You could buy they call them a forty five. Or you could buy an album, or you could buy a tape. There were no CDs yet, even. So if you went out and you bought a tape, and a tape would cost somewhere between $10 and $14 in the 80s. You know, I mean, think about that, because that's 1980s money. So you're, you're talking more like $20, $25, $30 in today's dollars to buy a single album. And you would, like... You would eventually convince yourself that all the music on that album was good because you paid for it, um, but you would have songs on it that you just kind of had to get through when you listened to the whole thing. CCR wasn't like that. It's like everything was good. So what I've been trying to bring you this week is some of the, maybe this one not lesser known, but maybe lesser appreciated. It, it is kind of amazing to me that this music you know, is like 40 plus years old now. And still popular. I mean, there is you like you know when I play uh, when I played Fortunate Son for you yesterday or Monday right whatever day it was Tuesday I don't know but whenever I played it for you that dun 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 right there is there is almost nobody on the planet doesn't hear that immediately know what that song is 
in 2020. 40 plus years, almost 50 years since the music originally came out. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, I wanted you to have something kind of, you know, jamming and upbeat, given all the shit that's going on right now. So here we go. Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival with Green River. With that's been Jack Spirico with a rewind, but yet another episode of the Survival Podcast.